This podcast episode is made possible in part by a grant from Lilly. Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. I'm podcasting from the 2023 American Society of Clinical Oncology Annual Meeting. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Graff, Director of Breast Oncology at the Lifespan Cancer Institute at Brown University and co-leader of the Breast Cancer Translational Research Disease Group. She is going to explain the most applicable research on breast cancer presented at this conference. Dr. Graff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much for having me again, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here. So in your opinion, what was the top breast cancer research we heard about this week? I feel like CDK4-6 inhibitors <laughs> stole the show again. Um, and, and of course, then ADCs were in, I guess, kind of a never-ending circle in the story of breast cancer with those two themes uh, continually. Just to let everybody know, antibody drug conjugates. Antibody drug conjugates, exactly. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So tell us about the CDK4-6 inhibitors. To me, from the presentations I listened to, I thought it was, there was some controversy, but I'm not an oncologist. So yeah. Break it down for us. So let's start in the early stage disease. So when I say early stage disease, I mean curable breast cancer. And this week we saw the results of the Natalie trial. Um, Natalie looked at the use of ribociclib for patients with early stage breast cancer. Specifically, Natalie was expanding the patients that are potentially eligible for CDK4-6 inhibitor with early stage hormone receptor positive breast cancer. We already have abemaciclib approved in that space based on the results of the Monarch-E trial. Um, but the Monarch-E trial took patients that either had lymph node positive breast cancer that was um, four or more positive lymph nodes or patients with one to three positive lymph nodes and additional risk factors. So high risk. Very patients. high risk patients. So Natalie, the trial we learned about at ASCO 23, included patients that had any lymph node positive breast cancer. So if you had one to three positive lymph nodes, four or more positive lymph nodes, you were just eligible. It also included patients with T2N0 tumors. I'm going to say that not using my doctor's shorthand. <laughs> T2 means a tumor bigger than two centimeters. N0 means negative lymph nodes. So if you both had a tumor larger than two centimeters and were lymph node negative, you would have been eligible to be on the Natalie trial if you also had an additional risk factor, which included a grade three tumor or a KI67 of over 20%, or a genomic test that was high risk. So a mama print, an oncotype, like something that said you have a high risk tumor. Okay. So a much wider population, um, including even some lymph node negative patients, and randomized those patients to receive ribociclib plus adjuvant endocrine therapy or adjuvant endocrine therapy alone. 
Now, ribociclib has some drug-drug interactions, so no patients receive tamoxifen because there's a drug interaction with those two compounds. And because all of the patients were on aromatase inhibitors, all of the patients were postmenopausal. Premenopausal patients were allowed, but they had to be given ovarian function suppression to be eligible. And the outcome, we got the results of the, the second interim analysis, which met its primary endpoint. So this was actually an early meeting of the endpoint. So at a, a relatively short uh, time point, so the vast majority of patients are still taking the medication, they have already met the primary endpoint of invasive disease-free survival. And what they saw was that there was a 25%, 25.2%, if we want to be nitpicky, uh, reduction in the risk of breast cancer recurrence, invasive disease-free survival for patients that were randomized to receive ribociclib. Now, patients in the Natalie trial took ribociclib for three years. And so at this short time point, like 99% of the patients are still actively in that three years of therapy. And so, you know, going back in time at the first analysis of the Monarch E trial, the abemaciclib trial, which they gave us also at about 24 months, everybody was like, well, we'll just wait to see what happens after people have been off that drug for a while. But now we've seen that Monarch E curve continue to separate over time where at that first interim analysis, the delta, the difference, the change was 2.4, I'm sorry, 2.8%. And it's continued to widen to 6.4%. Now I think it's at 8.3%. It just keeps getting wider and wider as they get farther out. Mm-hmm. The delta on Natalie is 3.3%. So it's already higher than yeah, the monarchy it, trial. Well, again, that's a dangerous I, cross-trial I guess, comparison, yes, yes. right? We don't, okay, we don't, we don't do, do we don't that. compare that. Right. But it's, at the very least, comparable mm-hmm. to the monarchy if you look at the same basic time point, even with a smaller, like a potentially lower risk population. Right. So, you know, I think... Nadia Harbreck, uh, who's, uh, you know, worldwide, internationally recognized breast oncologist, did the discussion of the presentation. And her conclusion was that we now have two standard of cares in this space. And I agree with that. I think that this gives us, we don't have an approval yet, so I can't write a prescription for it tomorrow. I think insurance may balk at us. But (laughs) I think that this really is going to open up the possibility. I I hope to see that we move toward that. I think that what's going to fall into our thinking then is the individual choices of two years versus three years, okay. cost of drug, side effects, because there's a difference in what to expect with a bemaciclib versus ribociclib, eligibility, whether somebody is Monarch E eligible versus Natalie eligible. Um, I tend to be a purist in who I choose for which treatment. Sure. And we'll wait to see how the medical oncology community and uh, perhaps more important regulators right. and payers uh, react to this early data. Okay. Yeah. No, I thought it was very exciting. It seems like it could expand a CDK4-6 inhibitor to a lower risk population. So as you said, we have to wait and see what uh, I know there were a couple other CDK4-6 inhibitor presentations. Do you want to talk about those? Just to to sort of stay in the early stage disease space, the other two Uh, Maybe actually let's do the other three early stage topics that I think are important to talk about. 
We saw an update on the Monarchy trial, the abemaciclib in curative breast cancer that we just talked about. And that trial showed us that um, it was an analysis of the I, I hate to say elderly because we define that, right? right. You laugh. We, we define that as age over 65. Right. And um, I jokingly always tell people you're not old until you're older than my parents who are in their 80s now. So the over 65 population and um, the over 65 patients derived the same benefit, their magnitude of benefit, the efficacy, how well the medicine worked was identical. So I think that what that told us is that there's no reason to shy away from treating a 65-year-old, a 70-year-old exactly the same, offering them the same treatment. Buried in that presentation was a single slide that I think was so important that wasn't in just the age over 65 population, it was in all comers. And that slide, so the, the presenter taught us that patients over the age of 65, despite having the same rate of side effects, were more likely to have dose reductions, right. which is probably bias on the part of physician investigators, right? Because There's probably they assume they're going to have more side effects? Or? Yeah, or they interpret their side effects more harshly and so mm. dose redu reduce off protocol. I, I don't even know how to interpret that. Anyway, as a counter to that, they gave us the data for the whole population, not just the age over 65, that showed that the outcomes of patients treated with adjuvant or curative abemaciclib, regardless of dose reduction, was identical which is amazing. That's right. such a helpful pearl for me as someone who prescribes these medicines to be able to say, you know what, if you're having side effects, we can reduce your dose and your outcome's going to be the same. Because I think especially when we're talking about curative disease, a lot of people feel like, gosh, if I lower my dose, am I still going to be able to, you know, beat this thing? Right, right. And yeah, I think it really supports that. Yeah, no, that was, I thought that was very great yeah. too, especially if it's going to help decrease side effects. Yeah. The second um, one, which is now the third one we're talking about, <laughs> is Dr. Richard Gray gave us a, a follow-up on a meta-analysis of over 15,000 patients, just at 15,000 patients, all premenopausal, to, again, look at the question about whether or not ovarian function suppression was beneficial. And the resounding answer is yes. Offering ovarian function suppression reduces the risk of recurrence and death by about 18%. Ovarian function suppression is inexpensive. It certainly comes with side effects for some, not all. Mm -hmm. And so I think that with that magnitude of benefit, that it's always a conversation that we should be having with premenopausal patients, especially when you layer on top of it that we also know that aromatase inhibitors are better and CDK4-6 inhibitors also continue to improve outcomes. So for a premenopausal patient, we can just layer and layer and layer and, and each of these incremental steps continues to offer us a better and better outcome. But that magnitude of benefit, that 18% reduction is really important. Another pearl that came out of um, that meta-analysis was that not only did it reduce the risk of breast cancer recurrence and death, there was no increase in other causes of mortality. 
I think that what we often think is that, well, if we do ovarian function suppression, surely we're going to cause other negative health effects. And we didn't see that those premenopausal patients then had an increased risk of, you know, cardiovascular deaths or other you know, ill health effects. Oh, and so I think, we, yeah, I think we can, we can rest assured that, you know, that it doesn't cause, I don't want to say significant impact on their risk and their health, because obviously, again, there's side effects, but does right. it negatively impact the risk of death? Okay. Last was just a poster that I want to mention, because I think it's a, a simple thing to think about. There was a poster, poster number 376, that looked at um, the time of day that people take their medications and how it intersects with the sort of complex hormonal environment that is our bodies, the Petri dish that we walk around <laughs> in. Um, and um, what that poster shows was that there's really no difference with aromatase inhibitors, but that for patients taking tamoxifen in the evening, as compared to patients taking tamoxifen at night, I'm sorry, that's the same thing. Patients taking tamoxifen <laughs> at night right. have a better outcome than patients taking tamoxifen in the morning. And, you know, it doesn't cost a darn thing to change your tamoxifen to a nighttime dose. Um, and, you know, I don't know that we're ever going to design a phase three randomized trial to have people switch their pills to nighttime dosing. And again, it's such a simple switch for most people currently taking tamoxifen to take that. And, and I clearly have no evidence that it would harm anyone to take it at night that I, I think that even though that was just a poster, it's worth considering. Were there any ideas why the time? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a complicated, there, there's a lot of really, really elegant um, biochemical reasons that have to do a, with our clock hormones. I mean, we've known for a long time that our hormonal regulation has a lot to do with our circadian rhythm. Um, if you think back, um, shift workers actually have a higher risk of breast cancer, which probably has to do with circadian rhythm um, dysregulation. We also know that things like cortisol balance and our hormonal cascade surges and troughs at different time points based on what is happening with our hormone levels that regulate our sleep cycle. And so we think that maybe just taking tamoxifen at night has the biggest impact on that estrogen balance in as a premenopausal woman. Um, and so here we are. Okay. Well, then that kind of makes sense if that's kind of the rationale behind it, because yeah. I mean, aromatase inhibitors are either in postmenopausal women or yeah. people who have ovarian suppression. So yeah. they don't have as much estrogen. So exactly. That makes sense. Okay. Exactly. Okay. All right. What else? What else was exciting? So now, I mean, we can move to the metastatic space sure. if you want. Yeah. And so continuing our CDK46 inhibitor <laughs> theme, right? right? So the metastatic setting, um, I think that um, in the metastatic space, you know, I guess maybe the controversial presentation is the SONIA trial. The SONIA trial was done in the Netherlands, which randomized patients to first-line CDK4-6 inhibitors followed by second-line hormonal therapy versus first-line hormonal therapy followed by second-line CDK4-6 inhibitors, okay? In the first-line CDK4-6 inhibitor followed by second-line hormonal therapy, the second-line hormonal therapy was mostly fulvestrant. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
And it showed that there was no difference between first line CDK4-6 inhibitor and second line CDK4-6 inhibitor in terms of progression-free survival, overall survival, or quality of life. And that there was a significantly increased number of grade three and grade four toxicity events in patients that got a first line CDK4-6 inhibitor because patients that received a CDK4-6 inhibitor in the first line took it for a longer cumulative time. Mm. Like everybody's first line treatment, no matter what their first line treatment was, was longer. Okay. And also patients that got a first line CDK4-6 inhibitor had a substantially increased cost, again, because they took it for longer. And so the presenter's conclusion was for no benefit in outcome, only an increase uh, of toxicity, both medical and financial, that this is a harm Mm -hmm. to people and society and that we should stop doing this. I think that the discussant then did a very nice job saying, we see you. (laughs) This is beautiful data, but it's complicated. So first of all, the the control arm, the, the first line endocrine therapy followed by second line CDK4-6 inhibitor did really, really good. Mm -hmm. Like better than even historical controls in like the phase three randomized trials that brought drugs like ribociclib, palbociclib, and abemaciclib to market. So the, the fact that the control arm performed really well is unusual and it may raise questions about you know the the patient characteristics it was you know it was entirely a one country trial how would that look in an international population in a US based population i mean there's all sorts of comments the study was entirely done with palbociclib right that was um, uh, something that pal- Palbociclib has largely fallen out of favor in the U.S. at least because ribociclib and uh, has an overall survival advantage. Abemaciclib is trending dangerously. I mean, we're closer and closer. Um, and palbociclib does not have an overall survival advantage. So I think that a lot of U.S. medical oncologists have switched to using ribociclib as the standard first line CDK4-6 inhibitor in the metastatic setting because of that clear advantage. So how substituting ribociclib would have played in that landscape. And then the next point is that the second line therapy being full vestrant for the after CDK4-6 inhibitor is complicated. We've seen in all of the post-CDK4-6 inhibitor trials that full vestrant after CDK4-6 inhibitor doesn't perform well. Patients um, have a relatively short duration of response to fulvestrin as a single agent. And 
now in the U.S., that's rarely our approach. Often, you know, now we have SIRDs, um, medicines like Elicestrant for patients with ESR1 mutations. For patients with PIK3CA, we do things like Apilisib. Um, we have Affinitor mm-hmm. that will add for patients um, agnostic of any biomarker. We also, you know, as the landscape continues to evolve, we now have the New England Journal of Medicine uh, paper for Capovazertib. Um, so we need to see what the official approval, if it ever comes for Capovazertib, looks like if it's for the AKT altered pathway or all comers. And we're still waiting on the results of the post-monarch trial to give us a better idea of after progression on CDK4-6 inhibitor number one, do we continue on CDK4-6 inhibitors or can we even predict who a continuation strategy is reasonable for? And so I think that right now, the Sonia trial is probably not going to change the standard of care in the U.S. and may not change the standard of care in Europe. It certainly already reflects the things like the ESMO and ASCO guidelines for low and middle income countries, Mm. where access to things like CDK4-6 inhibitors is much more limited and needs to be considered in a much more complicated cost paradigm. You know, societal cost is far outside of my area of expertise. You know, it's a completely different question of whether that's something we should be considering or grappling with um, on a societal scale. But yeah, no, it was it was just a very interesting presentation. I was there, too. And I, as you said, I thought that discussant did a nice job of sort of incorporating everything into his presentation, but it's still, I guess I'll ask you this, because what I took away from it was we kind of need more biomarkers to figure out who's going to benefit from a CDK4-6 inhibitor after a CDK4-6 inhibitor, like if that's even possible, if is, what do you, yeah, I think, yeah, I do. And, and I think that that is, increasingly true now that CDK4-6 inhibitors are arguably the standard of care in the curative setting. Mm -hmm. Um, Because now one of the questions that we'll all grapple with is, so what happens when you see a patient who progressed six months, a year, five years, two years after receiving an adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitor? Like, where is that spot where you give them a CDK4-6 inhibitor again versus say, okay, they're resistant to that therapy. What's the biomarker that helps you decide? Um, I'm, I'm on and doing some of that work. We're on the translational science teams for some of these studies. And I, I think we're, hopefully we're getting closer to being able to answer some of those questions, but we're not there yet. Okay. Okay. And was there anything else in the metastatic setting that was? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the other metastatic uh, topics are, are that peritumumab deruxtecan is coming. It was a HER3 antibody drug conjugate. Um, <laughs> like like so much these days, HER3 doesn't matter at all. It's the target, but nobody cares about targets, apparently, in breast cancer. Um, I would love to have precision medicine in breast oncology, but we just don't. Um, so so we saw that the HER3 antibody drug conjugate was effective in hormone receptor positive breast cancer and triple negative breast cancer and HER2 low breast cancer 
And it didn't matter if you were her three high, her three low, or her three absent. You responded to the her three Durextican, which is called Paratumab Durextican. So I think we'll see more of that drug, which um, for those keeping track at home, gives us four antibody drug conjugates in the in the breast cancer space that the target doesn't really matter. So Sasituzumab Govitecan, which targets trope two, we don't measure trope two. Trastuzumab Durextican, which targets HER2, Yes, we use for HER2 positive breast cancer, but we now also get to use for HER2 low breast cancer, which is actually secret code for triple negative and hormone receptor positive breast cancer. And we now have um, data patumumab deruxtecan is still in clinical development, but it tar- is another trope 2 ADC. Oh. Again, trope 2 doesn't matter. And now we have paratumumab deruxtecan, which um, is a HER3 antibody drug conjugate, and HER3 doesn't matter. So we're really good at making antibody drug conjugates where the antibody doesn't matter. Right. And it's just, I just, for people listening, I want to explain like HER3, it's just, it's a protein, right? And, yes. And the drug is just aiming at that. It's yes. It's leading it to that yes. protein. Yes. It's a homing beacon on the surface of the cancer cell. Okay. And yeah. most, I'm, I can't remember the exact stat from the presentation, but I want to say it was like 60? Yeah. Right? 60 to 70% of breast cancer expresses it. Okay. But again, if you don't, it's fine because we, <laughs> it seems like we, it just, we don't care, right? We're just going to give it to everybody. Um, the other things that's, that happened where we saw the results of the um, uh, updates on Tropic 2, um, which was uh, Sasituzumab govitecan in hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer, it still works. Um, we saw updates on the progression-free survival and overall survival. It's a heavily pretreated patient population, but it has met overall survival endpoint, which is fantastic. They gave us some analysis looking at whether or not trope 2 expression mattered. Again, spoiler, it doesn't. <laughs> and then um, just as a, as a side note, one of the other things that was happening synchronously was the survivorship Mm -hmm. um, presentations were happening at the same time as the breast cancer presentation. And there was a presentation looking at the application of topical diclofenac. What is that? Um, It is just a gel that you're going to, it's just a gel. That's what you need to know. Um, It is, it's technically a pain medicine that doesn't really work very well for pain. Um, And adding topical diclofenac to your hands um, significantly decreased the risk of hand and foot syndrome for patients that were prescribed capecitabine and I, or Zalota, the brand. And I think we can all agree that that's terrible when you get it. And so to see a reduction in that with something as easy as a, a fancy hand gel <laughs> is, um, is wonderful. So I think um, uh, Dr. Miriam Lustberg, who was attending that session, tweeted out that it's practice changing. And if the president of the multinational uh, association of cancer supportive care says it's practice changing then i'm on board with agreeing with her sure yeah oh that sounds great and i'm assuming it's maybe inexpensive or you don't do you need a prescription for it or it you'll need a prescription for it and you know i'm sometimes shocked when I don't actually, because I've never prescribed it, um, because I didn't know until today. <laughs> right. um, so I'm sometimes surprised when we reformulate things or have to compound things, how they change the cost. There, I mean, diclofenac is dirt cheap. It should be affordable, but we'll see if making it a gel somehow changes that. Okay. All right. Well, Dr. Graff, thank you so yeah. much. This has been so helpful. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. 
please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.